Right, terrific. I think we're good to go. Good afternoon. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm the director of the Institute for Government. I'm delighted to welcome you here today to discuss uh, government outsourcing when it works and when it doesn't. And uh, I should say this has been packed out, not just this room, um, but people are still pouring in next door and an awful lot of people watching on the live stream. So welcome to you too. This has been a very um, timely, as we were just saying, um, but a very, very popular subject to discuss. It's something that the Institute has done work on for many years. You've got, an, I think, a uh, brief uh, compendium of our work up there. But we've done work on it really looking at what, has, um, what should we make of the uh, experiment, if I, if I can put it that way, over 30 years or so in using the private sector to supply an increasing range of government services, of, of government work, of government building and so on. Uh, what's worked and what hasn't worked from all that. And of course the Labour opposition has livened up this debate, uh, which is in any case an interesting debate, with uh, its, its own plans, uh, in a state of some evolution, it seems to me, um, but, but very much pointing at this, this question of what should we say has worked and, and what hasn't. And the collapse of Carillion added uh, more drama to all that. Well, we've got the, exactly the right people to discuss it with us today. I'm going to start at the beginning with Rupert Soames, who is uh, CEO for the past couple of years um, of Serco, He's turning around that very large outsourcing company, and before that, uh, CEO of Agrico, the uh, power, power supply? Rental. Rental, power rental company. Uh, on his left, Joshua Redaway, who's head of practice, uh, commercial and contracting at the National Audit Office and does a lot of studies on exactly this point of what works and what doesn't. On my right, Gareth Rees-Williams, the government's chief commercial officer and has a long uh, private sector uh, experience uh, in exactly this area of contracting. And Ed Welsh, my far right, now managing a managing director of Greenhill, the private investment bank, uh, but before that had a solid four years in the cabinet office looking at this, this kind of question of contracting. So we, um, anyway, and, and I know there's a lot of questions coming from all of you. I'm going to start with Rupert to say, look, how does it seem to you if I pose you this question of what works and what doesn't? So if I can just set some context, I mean, travelling around the world, uh, we operate internationally. Um, the UK is kind of seen to government... Uh, uh, the private provision of government uh, services as being the sort of Silicon Valley. Uh, it's where uh, things happen earliest, fastest, and uh, there's a lot of innovation. And I think that's entirely to the UK's credit. But a lot of countries copy what we um, uh, do. And I think that, you're right, it has expanded enormously. It is now huge. I mean, people under it, they think of outsourcing as being capita, G4S, Serco, and Mighty. In fact, we represent a tiny proportion of the market. It's about £200 billion a year that the government spends on goods and services. There are about 1.2 million people employed in private companies providing services to um, government. So it has um, uh, expanded enormously, and uh, with it um, has expanded the frequency of bad news stories about it. And I think that um, there's an analogy here, which is that if you took the accident rate 
um, of <coughs> aircraft, scheduled aircraft, the number of people killed per million miles um, uh, on scheduled aircraft 20 years ago, and carried that forward with the growth of traffic to today, there would be about 400 people a month dying on scheduled airlines. Okay. Last year was the first year uh, in history since airlines began where nobody died on a, um, uh, on a commercial um, uh, flight. And I think there is an element of that as more outsourcing has been done, so the perceived error rate has increased. And it hasn't actually is that dealing with government is difficult. Dealing, providing government services is uh, difficult. I'm not so sure that we've expanded the boundaries as being the problem. I just think there's more of it going on. And the great thing to remember, Kamal Ahmed from the BBC once said to me, said, Rupert, why is it that we only hear bad news about Serco? Well, I'll tell you, why is it that you only hear about bad HM inspector reports about prisons? Because the good ones aren't news. The fact that 5,000 prisoners slept, I hope, soundly last night in our um, uh, prisons and had switches is not a story. Uh, and I don't complain about this, but I say it is a fact. And one of the reasons why I think this is coming back into question is that there is a pretty constant drip drip of stories. Because when something bad happens in the provision of, custom, of, of uh, public services, if you can attach the name of a somebody who's not government, a Serco or G4S or Capita to that cover, it gives the story extra uh, meat. And I think that's something that we as suppliers need to think through. A, what are we doing to make sure that we don't get the steady drip drip? That we don't accept that uh, uh, state where uh, operational failures uh, uh, happen. Uh, but do something um, uh, about it. There's the other question, which is, where does the boundary lie between <coughs> what should be outsourced and what should not be outsourced? Um, uh, the, uh, and some people say, well, there are certain things that are too complicated uh, to uh, outsource. Well, let me tell you, um, running the atomic weapons establishment is quite complicated. You know, making nuclear weapons is pretty complicated, pretty secure, and that is entirely run by private companies, of which we are uh, one. People then sometimes say, well, actually, there are some services which are just too sensitive to go and uh, uh, put out. They, they involve too much of dealing with people's lives. And I point out then that the, virtually the entire primary care system in the NHS is outsourced to private providers who are called GPs. And then people say, oh, well, GPs are different. They're saints. They behave themselves. I say, there are 20 GPs a month being struck off. Right? And yet we don't seem to have those sort of issues. So where I think the line divides between what you can and cannot outsource is not about scale, it's not about complexity. It's really about decision-making. I think that when you stray into the land where you're asking or telling private companies to make decisions about people's lives rather than just operationally running services, I think that's a line. I think I draw the line at sending people abroad to kill the Queen's enemies. I would draw the line 
there, albeit that soldiers and sailors need to be fed by private companies, but actually pulling the trigger is not something that private companies do. I think policing is not something that we should do, though we can support. So I just think there, there are some, some guidelines. There, there absolutely are. The, the word probation is immediately coming up, and that line is uh, um, possibly one that um, offends your guidelines, but we'll come back to that. Can you just say something briefly on the question of margins, because this is going to be uh, central to this, and as, as you all know, one of the, uh, the battlegrounds in this debate, if you like, is some companies saying, look, our margins have been driven down a long way, and... Um, uh, by the government, uh, who has got better at all kinds of commercial things, and the government saying, no, look, it doesn't look like that, like that to us. Yeah, it's called whinging, um, uh, um, uh, 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 which we always get accused of. Um, I, uh, before Gareth says, says that, the, I think that there's a issue. I don't think the issue here is with margins, per, per se, because I think generally you've got to be something, you're dealing with government, you're dealing with taxpayers' money, you're not going to get rich quick. Uh, doing that, so 5% margins should be about the right level. I believe this is not about margin, I believe this is about risk transfer. And sometime in the last 10, 15 years, government started to justify uh, outsourcing contracts to private companies on the basis that it was transferring risk. I think this is a fundamentally bad idea. I think you should transfer them public services to manage them better. But taking, and what has happened, is huge amounts of completely unmanageable risk have been transferred into the private sector, like hand grenades sitting in contracts, and now they're starting to go off. Bang, they went off in Serco a few years ago. Bang, they've gone off in whichever company you choose to... Um, uh, name and we are still to this day being asked to sign contracts to take the risk of change of law for 10 years on a contract from a customer who makes mm. the law mm. uh, and you know it just ain't on um, so I don't think it's about margin I think it's about risk great Thank you very much for receiving that invita invitation to whinge and, and, uh, and declining it. Thanks. Um, Joshua, um, what do you make of this from the NAO's point of view? Uh, well, whether, whether, you know, whether the margins or the boundary of what should be outsourced or not, or just how it's working. Okay, so the last time I sat on Rupert's left was actually in um, Parliament, and it was in 2013. Um, and we'd just written a report where uh, we'd said there was a crisis of confidence in government contracting. And a lot has happened since. I think the government has done a huge amount of effort to try and improve its capability, and I think some of the companies involved have done quite a lot to replace the management, done quite a lot to self-cleanse and to try and improve confidence. But I think part of the point, kind of like implicitly behind the event today, is that that crisis of confidence appears to be uh, re-emerging. Um, and I think there are three things really behind that. There's kind of the economics and the financial performance of what's going on in the market. There's... Um, let's face it, a political um, context to this and certain voices are more prominent than they have been in, in the past. That's not really something that my office engages in, but it is part of the context. Um, and then there were the events that have happened recently. And I think the events, in particular... Carillion the events, you mean Carillion? Carillion and, and a few others, but yeah, Carillion. I'm not sure that, it's, that they show that there are problems in contracting. I think what they mean is that there is more discussion of the problems that have been there all, all, all along and um, that have been persistent. 
Um, when it comes to my office, the National Audit Office, we're completely agnostic over the, these lines of where do you put contracts and where do you not. I mean, after all, I make a living out of doing reports in government, and my, me and my colleagues, we are um, doing reports that are good and bad on in-house delivery, and we're doing it that are good and bad on um, outsourced delivery. And about a third of our reports are going to be on contracted stuff, but that's because about a third of all public expenditure is on contracted delivery. But... Um, what I would say is I don't think contracting is going to go away anytime soon. And two, two reasons for that. One is that the sheer scale of contracting, it's now a third of all public sector spending, so a quarter of a trillion pounds is spent on um, contracts in some form or other, be it goods, services or capital spend. That's more than the government spends, and I mean all tiers of government, including local government, spends on salaries. So when it comes to that make or buy decision, government decides to buy more often than it makes. So when you take into account that scale, and then something that my office has been saying to be fair, the IFG has also been saying for some time, which is that the civil service just simply doesn't have the capacity to do everything it's being asked to do. If you throw into that mix... Uh, um, a lack of confidence in contracting, you want to just really shrink that down. Well, we just don't see that being able to happen in the short term. So government had better start addressing some of these persistent issues. Government had better get better at contracting, in other words. Yeah. Now, the way we look at it was we have kind of six kind of themes that we are trying to organise some of our recommendations, findings that we persistently have and we've been monitoring over the last five years. And the first of these is in um, accountability and transparency. And just to pick one example from that. It, it's still the case that in the UK it's quite difficult to find out where the contracts are, it's quite difficult to read the contract and it's quite difficult to know what the performance of the contract is and quite difficult to know how much is spent on the contract if you're a member of the public. I, I can go and ask the question, so I'm, I'm, I've got that privilege, but you don't. Um, that's not the case in all countries in the world and actually I think we're a bit behind. The second thing that we look at is capability. And to be fair, and I'll I'll leave most of the comment to Gareth on this, because the government has been investing hugely in improving its capability. Um, But I think even Gareth would admit it's not exactly where he wants it to be. The third is how you actually manage the contracts. Now, we... Yes, I wanted to ask you about this one. You were talking about capability, so great. Go on. On managing the contracts (laughs) is that there's not really a good enough standard of what good looks like out there. Um, and I say it's slightly culpable because my office was the one that wrote the last contract management standard in 2008 and then we rewrote another one in 2016. But we did say in 2016 with this admission that we were basing this on what current understandings were, but we had doubts that if you ticked off every single bit of this, that you would actually be in the position to manage the contracts in a way that delivers the complexity of the services you've got. And ultimately, this comes down to the fact that if you think you can have a total contract where you specify what you want and you have KPIs and you think you can get that in a procurement regime at the beginning that will survive contact with reality when the contract starts to be implemented, then you really haven't experienced contracting and how it actually works, which is much more relational um, in reality. It's much more about how people interact with people and um, is much more about understanding hard commercial realities so it's kind of, that needs to improve. I, th- I think that distinction between writing the contract in the first place and then managing yeah. it is one of the things that came out, came out with Carillion and is uh, really important when we look at um, assessing how government is doing on this. Mm. May I just pick you up on one bit before moving on, um, which is, you said, look, it's not um, 
something to the effect of it's not a failure if a company, an outsourcing company goes under or something. A, a line of argument I, I think many would uh, support you in. But what, if government is to argue that that isn't a failure, what does it have to be able to do? I'm not, I'm not sure I did quite say it like that. All right, no, you're uh, exactly. So, so tell, tell <laughs> and me what, The reason I didn't say that like that is I'm halfway through doing our, our, our work on Brilliance, so I'm not going to come out with what we say yet. What I would say is that we do believe that provider failure is what you would expect mm. if you have a market. Mm. That's, that's yes. the purpose of it. What the government needs to do is to ensure that it understands how it will have continuity of services. So it keeps the services going to about. the public if that happens, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank, thanks very much for clarifying <coughs> that. Ed, let me, let me come to you. Um, what points would you like to pick up on? But we have many that go to the heart of this, including this distinction between writing the contracts in the first place and managing them from government's point of view, and also these, these questions about uh, how hard government should push uh, companies well, in the taxpayer's interest. So I, I echo the comments of um, the, the previous two in terms of uh, a couple of points. So one, I don't think the industry is going to go away or indeed should go away for the very good reason that Rupert made. I think we have a fantastic industry which has evolved very well over 30 years and is fantastically innovative and provides high quality services to the advantage of, uh, of all of us. But it has evolved and as with any evolution there are times when some things happen which are not uh, to the benefit of everyone and wrinkles occur and we need to deal with, with, with those issues as they come and I suspect um, it's not just about the level of attention but we do genuinely have rather more of those issues to deal with right now but um, we, we absolutely ought to find a way to deal with them because the core of outsourcing has been to the benefit of all of us I think. But to answer the question um, sort of directly um, under what conditions does outsourcing make sense? I mean, I, I think of it as under three buckets. So um, if we try to be very objective about when an outsourcer ought to be able to provide a better service, so a better balance of service quality mm. and price for everyone, I think it falls under three buckets. So one, is there a structural advantage? So is there a, for example, a payments platform which has already been invested in and the marginal cost of providing a further service is, is relatively low? Yes, pretty easy decision. Could, could you give us an example of that? Uh, so, so, so a, a payments platform, so payments, right. um, you know, a piece of technology which has already been invested in, or at the other end of the spectrum, you know, a caterer. Um, so if you are bulk purchasing, if you are bulk catering, by and large, you should be able to do that more efficiently than if you're doing it on, on a smaller scale. I think the second bucket is experience. Um, so by and large, people ought to get better they more, the more they do something and the more circumstances in which they have seen it, whether that's across different countries or different sectors, different activities, one ought to be able to uh, you know, run a call centre, run a accounts receivable more efficiently if you do it um, more frequently. And then I think the third piece, which is um, uh, a little bit softer, is around alignment and motivation. Um, so there's always the old adage of the outsourcers that you know, a customer's back office is our front office, we care about it more, we will be more motivated. But I think it's important to get alignment across the contract as well. Um, so does the contract actually drive the right behaviours and can we rely on it um, to, to do that? On the flip side, there are conditions which I think um, correlate, not necessarily cause, but correlate with poorer quality outcomes in, in outsourcing. Uh, the first is complexity of service, so to the extent that something cannot be described, and I'm sure Rupert is bristling at that, which I'll have a, a caveat in, in, in a moment, 
Second is that the service requires significant transformation. The third is customers looking to buy insurance, the way I describe it. So I have seen an awful lot of instances where government is trying to insure as part of a contract. And if you try and meld those two together, you're almost certainly going to mess up. And then the fourth is the customer is looking for capital. Uh, and particularly in the context of government, outsourcing capital, to my mind, is crazy um, and is often confused in, in some of these contracts. But importantly, none of those four, and indeed the four collectively, are a reason not to outsource. So each of those can exist, and as long as the fundamental points are still there, you can still successfully outsource. But what I've seen too many times is one of those four be the driver for outsourcing and the other conditions don't exist and I think that's where you, you, you often get a problem. And this leads me on to perhaps the most fundamental point in, in my view which is we have evolved to a point now where there's a lack of honesty in many of these relationships and contracts. And I think it's, it, it's a point which actually permeates across not only business to business but business to consumer. I mean I think you can all probably come up with plenty of models whether it's rental of cars or free banking uh, which perceive uh, or seek to perceive to be giving uh, something for a particular cost, whereas in fact the cost is hidden elsewhere within that contract. And I think it really has permeated quite deeply uh, w within our society. So if I had one big plea, it's that we can all um, allow the space um, for honesty to re-emerge in, in most of these um, re relationships. And I think... Um, if we do manage to do that, I think the future of the outsourcing industry continues to, to be very bright. If I may just give very briefly, and I'm sure we'll cover these points in, in more detail, but if I had my sort of starter for 10 <coughs> as to what behaviours um, might lead to that greater honesty. In terms of the industry, I think it needs to sort out the accounting. Um, I mean, it has taken steps in that direction, but this uh, aggressive... Uh, creep of assumptions uh, which accumulates um, just has to stop. I think the industry needs to be open about pricing and assumptions. It can't have a separate set of assumptions as to where it's going to make money which are not implicit in uh, explicit in the contract. I think it needs to be objective about when it can add value in an activity. Um, I agree it's pretty broad but there are situations where, where it can't. Uh, and I think it's important to align incentives with the timescales of contracts which is another fairly fundamental structural issue, um, particularly in, in respect of government. And then on the customer side, I think they ought to be clear on the objectives when they're deciding to outsource. So if it is obtaining financing or it is looking for insurance, stop. That's not a good reason to outsource. Know what the real internal cost and performance are before you decide to, to outsource. Accept that things change. And if you seek to penalise providers, then they're going to get you somewhere. Um, so let's just be a bit more honest uh, about that. Recognise management of contract is at least as important um, as the procurement uh, of the contract. Um, and my final point would be they need to lower the procurement thresholds. So um, we shouldn't have that as a differentiator between industry providers. Um, it ought to be the quality of the service. Sorry, what do you mean by lower procurement? So, 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 so the, the hurdles inherent in participating in... A, a procurement. Yes. Right. Uh, thanks very much indeed for that. Well, look, I'm um, admirably um, answering our questions and so giving Gareth uh, even more to comment on. So you've had a whole range of 
Yeah, actually, not a whole range of views. I mean, some, some remarkably consistent views about what works, um, what doesn't, and some comments about government skill both in writing the mm -hmm. contracts and in managing them. Which is you. Well, Over to you. I, I think it's been very interesting, and, and thank you, Bronwyn, and thank you to the IFG for setting up this, this event. Um, I was brought into government to improve commercial capability, having spent my career in the, in the private sector. And I've certainly landed at an interesting time. Um, it's been a busy couple of weeks with Carillion and, 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 and the aftermath. So this is actually a great opportunity just to take stock and, and have a think and, and, and start a wider set of discussions. Uh, first thing I'd say is that I would really echo something that Rupert said. Um, when does government outsourcing work? Well, the reality is it's working right across the country um, where there are hundreds and thousands of diligent and skillful people working for private companies, large and small, uh, that are del delivering really excellent public services efficiently uh, and effectively. Um, and that's a, a good that we, must, uh, that we must cherish while working on the things that are, that, that are not so good. Um, I think when you look at the numbers, uh, the, the last set of numbers I could find were, were CBI numbers, saying that uh, this outsourcing was saving public authorities 11% uh, uh, by contracting out. Um, so where does it work? And I'm, I'm going to be rather boring and, and agree mostly with what Ed was saying. Both outsourcing, and let's remember, private companies outsource a lot as well. So this is not, these success factors apply both to public and private uh, sectors. Well-defined requirements, something you talked about. Buyers who understand the market, government buyers in our case, Vendors who know clearly what is expected of them, and I think touching on what Joshua was saying, skill, skilled, taught, proactive contract and relationship management once a contract has been let. And I think that, uh, coming in from outside of government, I used to sell a fair amount to government, that is one area we have still a lot to do in. On the management of the contract, as yes. opposed to getting them in the first yeah. place. Yeah, and we, we have a far and forget sort of so. mentality, which I think we're changing, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Mm. Um, but, of course, there is a, a specific context for government, and I think it's clear that we're, we are blunt about, about the context here. Um, we want vendors and partners who deliver value for money. We want them to deliver it, though, consistently and sustainably. And we want them to make a fair return, fair reflecting the investment they're making and the risks they're taking. Why? Because we want those services to continue. We want those, those vendors to bid again when those contracts... Uh, come up again. Um, we want them to bring innovation um, where, the, where they possibly can, all of which boils up to that concept of a fair return in return for the excellent service or products that they should be delivering. Um, but in the last you know, few months, 15th of January sort of etched in my mind, we've had, uh, which is when Carillion uh, went under, that has posed some really good questions which we need mm. to think about. How do we make sure we can continue to deliver those public services, even in a moment of some strain? Um, how can we interact with the market such that we're delivering in a better and better uh, way, um, value for money and service quality? As regards delivery, I think it's fairly clear now that the contingency planning that we put in place starting, gosh, seven, eight months ago um, was pretty successful. Public services have continued to be delivered largely uninterrupted. And the processes and support we've put in place so far have saved many of the Carillion jobs in the UK. So what could have been 
what was ghastly, and I don't, don't underestimate the effect that that's had on, on individual people and individual firms, but what could have been a truly ghastly situation has actually been, been managed quite well. But um, we also have to remember that while very regrettable, the demise of Quillian is a very, very rare thing. Um, the official receiver can remember no other public company uh, that has run out of cash and had to put itself uh, into forced liquidation. Um, and it's increasingly clear also that the problems that they had related to a number of construction co contracts, some of them overseas, that went wrong for them simultaneously, which accelerated their cash problems. Whereas the outsourcing work that they were doing for us, schools and hospitals, was A, being delivered well, <coughs> and with very few exceptions, was appropriately profitable. So while Carillion is a good catalyst for us yeah. to, to uh, have, 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 have some thoughts and take stock, it wasn't the cause of what caused uh, Carillion. Um, so what are we doing uh, to improve? And uh, Rupert was kind enough to mention this, as, as was Joshua. Over the last couple of years, um, we've recruited around 200 senior procurement and sector specialists uh, into uh, the civil service in senior roles. Um, we've introduced professional standards for, for procurement staff and assessed over 1,000 people against those standards. We've reissued standard contracts, standard terms and conditions to make it easier to deal with us, which is Ed's point about the hurdle rate uh, uh, that companies have to, have to get over. And we've sharpened up the guidance for colleagues on contract terms as regards risk and liability. We've also expanded the use of open book contracting. Um, I need to send them to Joshua because we have just launched a couple of weeks ago um, some professional standards for contract managers, uh, which we want to start training and then accrediting uh, people against uh, as well, because that is a, a key area. Um, that's all done and happening. What else are we thinking about? Um, particularly thinking about Carillion, what there are ideas about living wills, data stores, contingency planning, and that would all make resolving a crisis easier, that sustainability point. And those are all good ideas, and we should absolutely think about them. But of course, the key point is to avoid these issues in the first place. Um, what can we do in that area? One thing we should look at is smaller contracts. We've done this successfully in the IT area, where we've disaggregated contracts moving from one large vendor to, in some cases, 300 smaller ones. Um, that has a number of effects. It increases the opportunities for SMEs. We're up at just shy of six billion spend directly, which I think is 80% uh, up on 2010. But there's more we can do there. But it also makes the whole system more resilient, not only while it's running, but while it's bidding. Too often, we do have situations where bidders are in a winner-takes-all situation that encourages bidders for very large contracts, where the bidder is encouraged to bid silly prices because if they don't, they have nothing for five years or ten years or whatever. And I think that's a, a self-imposed uh, uh, self-imposed issue. Self-imposed by government? Yes, and I think partly in the past, and Joshua touched on it, we haven't had enough procurement capability in-house to be able to do anything else, whereas we increasingly do have that possibility. Um, we launched last September a, a supplier code of conduct, and one of the key phrases in there, which I feel sure Rupert will come back to, is about the transfer of risk, because he makes a good point. 
what we're seeking to do, and I would recommend it to those of you who don't have it under your pillows, um, is we talk about placing risk with those best placed to manage it. That doesn't necessarily mean with our vendors. I said earlier that we should pay a fair return for the risks that a vendor suffers. Uh, consequently, it's not actually in our interest to push, ri push risk onto our vendors. We'll end up paying for it, and if they can't handle it because they haven't actually realised what the risk was, then we risk a service disruption or they'll cut costs uh, in order to still make money, which reduces service quality, which is, again, not what we're trying to do. This is not so much an, in, uh, an issue in construction or the simpler types of outsourcing like facilities management, but in complex out outsourcing, I think there is a growing realisation we need to spend more time working with our vendors up front, ideally running pilots if we have the time, in order to tease out the details so when the running contract kicks in, uh, there are fewer surprises that come back yeah. to, uh, to haunt. Um, so in, in summary, really, I think... I would say outsourcing has produced great benefits to the public service, but it needs skilled management on both sides, a fair return, and clear objectives for contracts uh, to succeed. If we don't do that, public, and it would be private, it would, it would fail as well in a private context, but if we don't do that, public contracts uh, will fail. I think the record shows that public, and, public oversight and private provision can deliver great services. Um, but I fully accept we've got to do more, and I look forward to, mm. to the discussion here. And thank you very okay. much again for hosting. You're very welcome. Um, and the discussion is about to begin. Let me just, just um, let me make one observation, um, and then ask you uh, just, just one question. Has um, come up from my, my left. Um, the observation is: Look, you're not a politician. Um, you've made a, a, a case that um, outsourcing has brought a lot of benefits. Um, it seems to me there is a case. Um, that has to be made and has to, you know, find some kind of landing in the public mood because it hasn't at the moment. Um, and part of our interest here at the institute is to distinguish what has worked well from what hasn't, indeed, what could be done better, and so on. But to make sure that if there is a kind of backlash against some of this, that, that the good doesn't get thrown out with the bad. So I'll simply make that observation. Let me pick up what uh, Rupert said though about um, what should be outsourced and not, which is relevant to that. Um, and whether you feel that areas where, I think you put it, um, it involves a decision over someone's lives, whether that uh, is an in inappropriate area for, for outsourcing. You're, you're asking me to stray into the area that is rightly the, the province of, 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 of my political masters. So I, I'm going to sort of slightly duck under that one, if you, if, if you don't mind. Um, I think I'd, I would phrase it perhaps in the way that, that, that Ed did. Where there are obvious outsourcing advantages is where there's a scale advantage, a scope <laughs> advantage, an expertise advantage. Mm. And the more you move away from mm. those, the less clear the economic benefit is likely to be. I'd put it that way around, mm. perhaps. Mm. No, ab absolutely fair. Let's have some questions. I think there are going to be quite a few. Um, right, let's, go, let's start in the middle there. I'll take two or three at once. Could you wait for the microphone, please? That's great. Um, my question was in relation to your, the risk-sharing approach. Um, is there set to be any kind of threshold or cap in terms of um, how much risk is shared between the private and the public sector in, in, in contracting? Or is this um, by a project-by-project -project basis? Thank you. Would you like to say who you are, please? So this is Gabriella from the Cabinet Office. Great. Okay, and let's, there's someone to, behind you. Yep. Hi, um, Martin Hurst from UCL, but 
um, former government commercial director in one of the departments. Um, two related points which I think partly come out of conversation. <clears throat> the first is one of the reasons government outsourcing quite often doesn't work is because there's too much focus on price relative to quality. And that's partly a function of Treasury and PAC, and it's partly a function of the nature of the EU and WTO procurement law that is much easier to get price sorted. And any tips on how one might address that balance would be gratefully received. The other one is I found time and again, and Ed will relate to this because we were both on the same deal, um, the pressure on both sides of a negotiating team to reach a conclusion means that you often in government and in private sector end up signing deals you probably shouldn't at that point. And how you can adjust the reward structures to reward walking away or taking more time rather than rewarding conclusion is something else the panel might want to comment on. Okay, thanks. I'm going to take those, those two together, or in fact three. Martin has snuck in with a second one. I hope I'll ask people actually to try and restrict themselves to their best question. Um, okay, we've got Gra Gabriella's question about risk, risk sharing and Martin's about um, well, two aspects of how you do these deals. Um, let, me, let me start on this side. What? You, you and Joshua. Yes. Yeah, <clears throat> so risk sharing, yes, I think that the, the, there has to be a limit. The government takes great pleasure in saying that, the con that there should be unlimited liability for everything. And where that gets you to is saying, we want you to make a 5% margin, uh, but also take the risk that we can bankrupt your company. And that is just not acceptable. You know, that just doesn't happen in real life. So as Gareth rightly says, and I want to pay tribute to the effect that he, impact that he personally has had on the, uh, um, Crown Commercial Service, which has been very considerable. I know he knows this, but there's also a lot of colleagues to bring along on that uh, uh, argument. On this idea of pressure to sign and price, on the price thing, I actually think that is a matter of getting the criteria, which you can set under European rules, right about how you're going to judge the bid. And if you consistently say that it's half quality and half price, no. you're effectively saying is that price is as important as quality. And actually, I think that's wrong. I think you can manage that better. And the other thing is pressure to sign. I completely agree with you, and I have harsh words in my dreams uh, for uh, some of the... It very often comes from the politicians, and you mentioned probation. Mm. We all know why probation got rolled out far too fast, ridiculously fast. We all know why it wasn't properly field trialled and field tested. We all know why the contracts were written um, uh, uh, in unseemly uh, haste. And my God, tens of thousands of people are paying for that now in terms of the uh, degree of care that they are getting. It was a political imperative of... Uh, government and particularly of a, 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 a part of the administration to get the thing done by a time. And I think if there was ever a moment when civil servants need to pluck up the courage to write not about a financial thing, but to say, write formally and say, Minister, the timescales that you are requiring us to do this are impossible. 
We will do them if you insist, but it's got to have a ministerial direction to uh, do things, and I don't see that being used nearly enough. Thanks. Um, <coughs> I agree with a lot of that. Um, all of that, actually. Uh, the risk transfer going wrong, I think, is one of the things that comes up on the time and time again in NEO studies when we're looking at things that have gone disastrously wrong. And Can you give any examples? Um, That's circo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, other example, the Magnots ca contract, yeah. uh, we recently said that we just didn't think that they understood um, how could they move to a target cost incentive if they didn't actually understand what the target cost was. Um, the electronic services network, which we said this isn't going to work and mm. the government told us it was and right now we think we're going to come back to it. Um, the uh, e-borders, big contracts mm. where mm. the government each time, it's not just in the fine detail of the risk transfer, it's actually inherent in the pricing mechanism, that you're trying to set up a pricing mechanism where they are responsible for delivering, they don't get paid if, they are going, if they're not going to deliver, and actually that's possibly the not the right way to have actually got what you want, and you don't get what you want, and then it all blows up in your face. Um, I think there are two elements to, the, to this, though. One is the kind of the, you know, I, I think the commercial community does understand the point about risk transfer, and that it should be where it's best able to be you know, managed and where people can best bear it. But, and that's why this capability point is so important, because it's not just their capability to understand that. They really do. It's their prestige and ability to influence within the civil service, yeah. and are they in the room right early enough to actually set the policy before they get handed it to go away and procure this. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly important. Yeah. I just want to come up... Back on the, because you mentioned PAC is part of the problem on pricing. I'm afraid I must fight back on that. Certainly, my experience in P PAC is, if anything, they care about quality much more than they care about the pricing because they see the knock on costs of poor quality. And they do tend to see it in the round, and that's how these conversations go. But again, this is, this is that bit between kind of like the politics and the technical, and the technical's got to support the politics there. It's all very well. I mean, what I see is it's all very well saying quality matters. But what I see is people doing like 80% quality, 20% price. But if you don't know how to assess quality mm. properly, what happens is everybody gets the same score on quality, which means you really are just evaluating on price. So it's actually about the fine detail, and that's incredibly difficult to get right. Mm. And I think is something we just incrementally we've got to improve our technical ability and understanding of how to do these things. Mm. I mean, the, uh, the institutes. <coughs> arguments in ball terms for, for what works and what doesn't certainly include one where you can measure performance and, mm. um, and others being uh, that there is a market and that it isn't so integral to government itself, which, which Rupert phrased in a different way. Uh, Ed, Ed, Ed and Gareth, Sorry, yeah. just make one point, which I think, um, so the time pressure, um, the transfer of risk, uh, focus on price because we're unable to assess quality, etc., etc., I think all of that is so heavily influenced by the fact that the technical requirements to look at a bid, the technical requirements to write a bid, are just going up and up and up because we're not being straightforward on both sides of that conversation. So there is far more gaming going on on both sides because we are um, seeking to obfuscate uh, and not be entirely straightforward. So you know, on, on quality, uh, you know, I think it is rare that people really distinguish themselves on quality. What they normally say is we are going to be as good as everyone else broadly and our price will be better than everyone else. 
Um, you know, so I think it is incumbent on, on, on both sides. Rupert, I absolutely agree in terms of civil servants being able to um, ask ministers uh, for direction to make absolutely clear the decision that they are making. But I think also on the industry side, if they continue to put forward bids, which they don't think are actually deliverable at that quality, at that price, we're going to continue to have the problem. Yeah, and I think, I think too, I would agree absolutely with, with what I'd said there, and particularly Joshua absolutely nailed it. The quality point, there aren't any bids where price is the only determinant. The bids are always a mixture of deliverables, and quality and price are the usual two, but they may be a third factor or a fourth. But the point that Joshua made is spot on. If we don't make precise and differentiable what those quality criteria are, mm. then mm. everyone scores mm. 8 out of 10, yes. in which case the default, mm. the only dis deciding point is price, whether it's 5% of the, of the evaluation criteria, or 55 yes. or 95. Yeah. Correct. It shouldn't be 95, of course. So I think um, that there's a pernicious point there. We need to train ourselves better, and we need to be, when I said earlier, we need to know what we want. That's what I mean. We need to be really precise about what do we mean by quality and, and not waffle. There's another pernicious point here that underlies uh, the timing point, which I thought was a great point that you made. Um, when, when we're short, short of time, it would be great if we could run pilots. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. The other thing that we let ourselves down on is our deliverables. So we need to get better at actually delivering our deliverables whether that's an IT system that the vendor is planning on uh, uh, piggybacking off or whether it could, could, could be anything. We need to be uh, part of our, the contract management regime that we want to roll out. will be tougher on ourselves because if we deliver our side, then we have a better case for saying to the yeah. vendors that they need to deliver their side. And it's often, more than occasionally, us that hasn't delivered something that then puts the vendor in trouble. But to, to, to finish on your point about you know, what should be the risk and reward, we should have penalties that hurt uh, in the sense that they, we, we, what, if there's a penalty there, the point is to make the vendor realise that this is behaviour or, or performance level that is unacceptable. But it shouldn't be such that it encourages them to game the contract, and it shouldn't be such that without the ability to, to do something yeah. about it, it pushes them into such a situation that they walk away then everybody loses. And the same with rewards. We should reward people for the better behaviour, for the better innovations, but not to the point that, we're, that, that it's just a, a bluebird, that a, mm. that a vendor can, can do some, one trivial thing in year one and you make hay for the rest of the contract. Yeah. Yeah. Rupert, quickly. Just adding on to that, I just want to say, again, I think one of the things that has surprised me most coming in from the outside, as you did, is that actually, as a general rule, there's no penalty for bad behaviour and there's no reward for good behaviour. Because it is so mechanistic, the procurement mode, because each one stands alone, because each one is scored separately, behaving well on one contract and doing things and being thought to be generally good folk and reliable and trustworthy doesn't seem to bear, really any, bear any reward. Yeah. Whereas you can have people who behaved incredibly badly on one contract, walked away, screwed the price or whatever, and bang, next week they go and win another contract. And I, and I think that that is, is a real problem that we, um, uh, that we have. I think we may have an answer to that one, but I need another couple of months to noodle it. Um, <laughs> uh, then we'll come back to you on that. Breaking news. There's a whole cluster of questions over here. Uh, um, here, here towards the 
picture of Martin McGuinness. Uh, Henry Lusengo, DEFRA. Um, I wonder whether we should be thinking a bit outside the box here. Um, I mean, <coughs> there seems to be a big emphasis on contracting, and we know that contracting has a fundamental problem that in face of uncertainty, contracts are always incomplete. And there seems to be other ways of doing relationships. If it's all about a relationship between the public-private sector, we have utility regulators, totally different sort of private-public relationship. But there's also a lot of interesting thinking about different forms of special-purpose vehicles where uh, shares can have different functions for the public sector as they have the private sector. Maybe we should be looking for different models of legal relationships that actually make the personal relationships, the trust, the communication, the transparency work a lot better than contracts, which seem to be have a lot of problems about them as a, a legal instrument. Interesting bit against contracts. I'm going to take several um, uh, here on the aisle. Yes, I, I, I should declare an interest. I was on an advisory group for Serco some years right, ago, would you <laughs> and uh, I want to say that this question arises from it. It's about how you handle subsidiary contractors and in that particular case um, Serco got together a, a group of people from the non-profit charity area and, and wrote a code of behaviour which I thought was excellent and I hope it's still there but that management of subsidiary contracts introduces a more complex principal agent, principal agent issue and I, I'd welcome some comments on Thank how that might be managed. Thank you. Would you like to give your name? Alex Murdoch. And, and let me take a, a third over here. Um, my name is Elizabeth Archer and I'm from the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, Joshua touched on transparency and accountability briefly. I'm sure we'll all agree that government outsourcing works best when it is transparent and accountable. Um, my question is, how effective are current government initiatives relating to transparency in the public sector? And if they're not effective enough, why is that? Unfortunately, we're still finding contracts are not detailed enough about what information is held for the purposes of the Freedom of Information Act, and why are these matters taking so long to address? Thanks. Are you speaking particularly about contracting or about the public sector in general? About contracting. About contracting. Good. Okay. Um, great. Well, uh, pitch against contracts, uh, subsidiary contra uh, contracts, which is uh, interesting, and transparency or lack of. Um, can I grab, grab, grab that first one? I think it's yeah. a, a really interesting point, and um, there's some, I think, quite innovative work going on in a number of different councils around around the country. I think Leeds have, have done some really interesting third uh, third sector contracts um, or third se third sector relationships. And it's something we we should look at. The only caveat I would add to this, as I know, you know Ed, Ed was involved in a, in a lot of the joint ventures that we set up a, a few years ago. If we don't, as government or as a, the civil service, put enough effort into managing these, whatever the structure is, uh, you know, the, these, this is a constantly evolving thing. This is a relationship. And if we don't put long-term people who are there for multiple years rather than few months into each... Uh, mechanism, no matter what the mechanism is, it'll, 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 it'll unwind. So I think the onus is on us, really, to, to stand up proper teams of trained and uh, accredited contract managers. And then I think a, a lot of that will well, get... Well, you're saying yes to the improvement of the relationship. You're not saying no to co contracts, are you? No, no, no. I'm, sa I'm saying... Which is part that of I the thrust of that question. No, I, but I think when we talk about different SPVs and, yeah. and so on, having spent, as Rupert has 
some of the quite a large fraction of the last two months dealing with a number of SPVs. They, they, are, they, are, they have multiple and various benefits and disbenefits. Um, so we, um, we should be careful about thinking there's a yeah. one-size-fits-all, yeah. but whichever is the right uh, structure and principle, that won't work if you don't manage it properly, yeah. which does still come down to who have you got managing whatever vehicle it is. Um, I think the transparency point is, is, is a good one. I think there's a good question there about how much more open book contract we do, we do um, and should we um, or should we not, I think it's you know, for discussion, display more of the KPIs uh, within each contract so that the public can see is this contract going well as well as delivering X or Y uh, return. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's something that mm. is quite a wide discussion. So I'll just pick up the, the first point, if I may, which, so certainly the general principle that if we could move further away from uh, trying to detail every single outcome uh, in a contract, which by definition gets larger and larger um, uh, with, with, with each time, and move more towards what were the principles and what were the commitments on either side um, relating to those principles, that has got to be for the good, that very glib and easy to say that. Do I think there are structures which could help with that? Yes. Uh, and I would certainly encourage the government to continue to experiment with them, uh, recognise that some will not work, some will require uh, more work than might have been anticipated. But ultimately, should we be able to drive more towards a partnership way of working by mirroring that in the contractual structure? Yes. Thanks. Yeah, Joshua, go on. Go on. Um, each in turn. I, I think the problem, of course, is you can't get away from contracts. You can have different vehicles that you are contracting with and that these are each going to have contracts with them. And one of the first things we always have to do in our reports when we look at these PPPs is try and explain that rather complex contractual landscape um, that you get. I'm slightly sceptical that there's a magic bullet here because I have spent my career looking at ones that have failed. But that doesn't mean <laughs> that um, it's not worth trying. So what we kind of advocate is... What we see is that kind of is generally a political push to reach this is the way to do it in this fashion and you jump for it. What we always want to see is a bit more of managed experimentation mm. with some control groups preferably, but if, if not, at least record your findings in an honest way about whether or not this is working. Um, and that, for example, there's going to be a hearing on PFI 2 um, coming up and I think that's the main theme of our recent report on that is the managed experimentation. On uh, now, I'll leave subcontractors only. Though I read that circuit thing, and we thought it was very interesting, and that there should be more of it. But you're like, <laughs> about the subsidiary. Yeah, 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 yeah. Contract, De dealing with subsidiaries. I mean, it's right. incredibly important. It's one of the Caribbean points as well. But I, if I can just and, and Elizabeth's last point on, on uh, yeah on transparency. Um, I think it comes down to this. I think the government has completely accepted there should be transparency over contracting. I think it's a cap capability to be transparent when their own data isn't in order. It's the sad truth. So I, um, what I would like to see is a step change in the way government actually manages its data and shares, that, shares the data between the myriad of different bodies. And I fear that that is going to take a long time because you're talking about quite a lot of infrastructure to be put in place to make that happen. But um, I think there's quite a lot of people in this room that are kind of have been gently encouraging it along the way and will continue to do so in the future. Well, we might come back to that right at the end. <coughs> ah.
Thank you. Um, so, <laughs> on different contracting models, I agree completely with Joshua. You can sit and again invent lots of things. There are actually some that work quite well. There's one that we use very successfully at the Ministry of Defence called Management Insertion, where we bring a management team, the people stay employed by the government, and we work under the direction of civil servants to go and manage things. And that was actually hugely successful. And I think that's an interesting halfway house because it leaves the essential capability within a government. On the SME point, I am very passionate about uh, this because I don't think there's one of the things we're not going to get away from, which is that contracting with government is a difficult, um, uh, complex, it has to be. You're dealing with taxpayers' uh, money, it's got to be hidebound by a whole lot of rules. And if I tell you, in Serco, we have 5,000 SMEs who work um, uh, for us, 37% of the revenue that's paid by us. To, from government goes out to SMEs, the other side, and it's actually quite a good model. And that rather than government saying, we want SMEs, this all pipe <coughs> dream, that government can suddenly become SME friendly, I don't yeah. think it can. I think it's just too hard. And I think one of the roles that we can play is being that bridge between, and the terms that we yeah. put on SMEs are nothing like the terms that we get to government, because we just wouldn't do it. And on transparency, I, I am, Serco um, suggests, have recently suggested four principles around how to tackle, coming back to my airline issue, how to tackle, how to make it safer to con a contract. And the most important one of those is transparency. It's not about the contract terms. I think it's transparency about operational performance. And I know government is re uh, 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 reluctant to do it. Joshua, you say, it's because government's data is not in order. Well, mine is. <laughs> okay? And actually, that's the point, is because you go and put great big data reporting requirements on us, we know what the problem is at its heart, is government is embarrassed that Serco that could go and produce a list of 150 KPIs for each of its prisons. Okay. I doubt whether the government could produce three, for, um, anyway, four at a stretch. Right. But I think that this is information, and, and you know, this you can say is part of a cunning plot, is that if we can get our information out there, if people can see that we are doing more or less well, that will be helpful, that will make it safer, that will help uh, come back to this issue of honesty and trust. And I think that, if I may say, government should just get out of the way on this and let contractors who want to go and put, publish on their websites every six months their KPI performance and their live or their um, uh, diabetes and will release a competitive spirit between the various contractors to perform better, to actually deliver operationally um, uh, better on this. But we all know the reason for the... For, the, for, for, for not wanting to do it, which is, as you rightly say, government just doesn't have the data for its own performance. I'm going to try, and we, we, we feel very strongly about that point. Um, at the, In at fact, the you agree with me. I do, you? I do. Yes, I know. Yeah. Keep on, yeah. keep on. Thank you. Um, I'm going to try and squeeze in two, and, and the panel just take, uh, use that as their last uh, thoughts. Here in the front, you've been very patient. Um, and I go right to the back, I'm sorry. Carolina Valiente. Um, you have been talking a lot about this race transfer. I think that is very important. But one of the issues that I, I would say is missing right now in the discussion 
is how the private sector does risk analysis or not. And one of the problems here is uh, corporate governance issues. And my question is how can we, using corporate governance principles, encourage pri the private sector to be more aware about the risks that they are facing and how to deal okay. with them? is crucial for Carillion and is crucial for okay. many other companies. Terrific, terrific, thank you. Private sector use of risk right at the back. Uh, thank you, Bronwyn. Uh, um, microphone, please. Th thank you, Bronwyn and um, IFG and the panel for an excellent discussion. I'm Liam Halligan, I'm a journalist. Um, given the, uh, the cost to employees, given the cost to SMEs, given the largest pension to hit the Pension Protection Fund in history, uh, was it right that the government walked away from Carillion? Uh, did it have a choice? Thanks. Start on that side. Upcoming report on that issue. <laughs> okay, um, so I'm going to go and leap to the uh, government's defence uh, on this as far as Carillion is concerned. I know to my certain knowledge that they were doing extensive uh, contingency planning. I think it is completely unacceptable the idea that government should have given Carillion <coughs> money. I don't care how much it's more it's cost to let them go down than to have given them money. There's a principle. You're a private company, you can go down. Uh, and your directors can find themselves without jobs and all those other good things, the harshness of the private sector. What I think that has to be done is, and we, we had the other end of this, was at Serco, we had government crawling all over us. The role of government in these circumstances is to ensure that there will be a continuation of service. And I challenge you to tell me of a single Carillion government services contract where, which has not continued to deliver its meals, which has not continued to go and um, uh, uh, clean the floors in, uh, in, in hospitals. Where Gareth is also right in saying is Carillion's Heart was a construction company. Construction companies go bust the whole time. There are 12,000 insolvencies last year in the UK, two and a half thousand of them were construction companies. It's the way that will, but when you get a construction company and marry it to a government services company, that can be a different economic um, uh, All right, uh, but given, given, given that, given that the, the yeah. government um, you know, signed the contracts with Carillion in those circumstances, did it owe anything um, to the pensioners, okay, they're supported by the Pension Pro Protection no. Fund, or to the small government, suppliers who were pitching up on the 6 o'clock no, news? No, 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 no. Government is in a really difficult position. You, you, mm. you damned if you do and you damned if you don't. Everybody knows that government knows more than anybody else. This is a public company. If government turns around and either does not award co uh, contracts when it reasonably could do, everybody else is going to f mm. run for the hills. If it does award, everybody says, well, why did you give them? You knew they were going bust. Let me tell you, I was really well informed about Krillin. I had very close information and until the 1st of January it did not occur to me that Carillion would actually go down. So there's opinions on, uh, uh, on this, I don't think they would know. Can I just take the, the, the risk management um, uh, point? That it is really difficult because hope springs eternal in the human breast. 
And when we're looking at, uh, when we're looking, at, I've, I've said the trouble with the government contracting is it's going on like this is it's going to become the home of the dumb, the desperate, and those who regard risk management as taking a 10-year accumulator bet on the 2.30 at Cheltenham. Because you're betting that something that's not nasty, like change of law, ain't going to happen. And I can tell you, you're sitting in your boardroom and you've got a you've got the person who's worked months, years on the thing and saying, change of law, don't worry, don't worry, it'll be all right. And they say that they wouldn't dream of being nasty to us if they do change uh, the law. And you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we really want the contract. Let's go and sign it. Or we walk away from it. Remember, they are a monopoly buyer. The government, there was a man called John Aspinall who had a zoo down at Howlitz and he had an elephant that successfully went and killed two of its keepers. The elephant was called Bindu and John um, uh, uh, came out after Bindu killed the second keeper. He said, he didn't mean any harm, he just didn't know his own strength. And, and the government doesn't know its own strength, which is why a lot of these things, these ten-year risks, that they seek to transfer are incredibly difficult to price. One more thing, I have just lost a contract in Doha because the price difference between us and our competitors was 250 million pounds, okay, which was a difference between the bet that they were prepared to take on Doha labor rates and the one that we were. I mean, these numbers get huge. They do. I'm not sure in the grand history of uh, analogies from this platform. Bindu that quite worked. Elephant. No, no. Ed and Gareth really. Well, that? and then there's a keeper. There's a keeper. There's a keeper, there's a keeper over. <laughs> it really, micro thoughts. So let me let me touch on on both very quickly. So with Carillion, I think it's and Rupert. Thank you for your, your comments. I think it's important to realise we are the customer here. We're not the shareholder and we're not the directors. Um, until the moment that that company or that company's board of directors determined that they had what's called no, I don't want to let you all on insolvency law, but until the moment where they, that board decided they had no reasonable prospects of a restructuring, that company was owned by its shareholders and run by its directors. We were a customer. <coughs> we then had the option, given that the company had no money left in it sufficient to pay for an orderly uh, administration, uh, an orderly dismemberment, which is, um, I, th I think, hit the newspapers a couple of weeks ago. Um, that wasn't an option. There was no cash to fund that exercise, and there were no assets in the company to fund that exercise. We were faced with, do we let it go into a disorderly admin uh, liquidation? What normally happens, the liquidator turns up, fires everybody at 8 o'clock and sells the chairs and tables, or do we fund it to the extent to keep things going on protect the public services in the way that Rupert has, has described, um, and then allow for it to be sold off bit by bit, which is what the official receiver is doing now. And while expensive, that is, we are judged, less expensive and much, much, much better for public services, which otherwise would have stopped at 8.01 on the 15th of January. Um, so I, but I think it's important to come back to that point. We're not the shareholder, we're not the directors. On risk transference, it's impossible to beat a story about elephants. Rupert has, <laughs> Rupert has several stories about, about big elephants. Um, um, I think the 10-year point is interesting, but other, on this change of law, I would just put the counterpoint that in many most private-to-private -private contracts, 
if a price changes, let's say, a minimum wage or a tax rate, then that is just borne by the vendor. What is different here, and I accept Rupert's point on this, is the length of some government contracts. So it's not just the nature of the risk or the quantum of the risk, but the length of the risk. And so I think there is a discussion uh, to be yeah. had about that. Yeah. Great. Last thoughts? Uh, I'll move just one very quick comment on, on the first point. So as I said in my opening remarks, I feel very strongly that we have all benefited from the evolution of an industry which has been at a greater rate and I think more successful in the UK than anywhere else. A fundamental tenet of that evolution is that some are not fit to live and therefore ought to die. So absolutely, you know, it should have gone down. Okay, on that resounding point of argument, thank you all very much. Thanks for terrific questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get them all in. And can you join me in thanking our panel? Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.